Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. It was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London, but Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church that Sunday morning. But in the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he'd set foot in a church, years of wondering, disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God that he once loved. See, that love for God, once fiery and passionate in his life, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Robinson heard the clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. Turning, he lifted his hand and tried to hail the driver. But then he saw that the cab was occupied by a young woman dressed in finery for the Lord's Day, so he waved the driver on. However, the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to be stopped. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you, she said to Robinson. Are you going to church? Well, Robertson was actually, Robinson was actually about to decline when he paused and said, yeah, I'm going to church. So he stepped into the carriage, sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. But there was this flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of inspirational verse, opened it to a ribbon bookmark, and and handed uh, the book to him. She says, I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could, Could it be? He took the book, nodding. Yes, I wrote these words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine, I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words he was reading from a poem he wrote so very long ago. They were words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of our faith in Christendom familiar to generations of Christians. Come thy fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read these words, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words, he said, and I've lived these words, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood. But you also wrote, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. It's never too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God and walked with him the rest of his days. The foundation of God's love is so deep, so immovable, so unchanging that to build anything on it requires complete surrender. God's love isn't something to be trifled with. It's offered to every single person, not just within an earshot of what I'm saying this morning, whether you're online or here with us presently. God's love is offered to every single person. But here's the kicker. We're prone to wonder. I know we could have debates on whether or not we are sinful individuals, but we are prone to wonder. Don't you feel it at times? Don't you feel those moments in life when everything inside of you is trying to tempt you to go one way when you know you shouldn't go that way, either in your thoughts, in your, in your actions, in your words? What is your life founded in? Where is your foundation? If your foundation is in anything other than Christ Jesus, who is God alone, then it's a faulty foundation. Jesus even gives us these words in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He tells us that the wise person builds his or her house on the rock. The foolish person builds their house on sand. Now, you don't have to be a civil engineer or a construction worker or somebody who, who does the, the kind of work for a living to know that if I build on something that's loose, eventually over time, it's going to shift. The Leaning Tower of Pisa in Pisa, Italy leans. Why? Because its foundation is only 10 feet deep. And because it's built on marshy land, that's what Pisa actually means, marshland. Did you know that? So not too long after it was built, because it's not that deep, and because it's on shallow soil and marshy soil, what happened to the tower? Began to lean. What are you built on? What's your life built on? Our sermon today is entitled The Foundation, and we've been going through this series on returning home. And the Israelites had been exiled. They had been taken out of commission. They were no longer a nation of people, though they were a people of God. Now having been dispersed through different kingdoms, the Assyrian kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, and now the Medo-Persian kingdom under King Cyrus, as I mentioned a couple sermons ago in last sermon, he allowed the Jewish people from all the different 
different areas throughout the Medo-Persian kingdom at the time to begin to come back home and reestablish a place of worship in Jerusalem, which was their holy city, to go ahead and begin to rebuild their altars and their, and their places of worship, the temple. Last week we talked about the altar, and the altar was a place of worship. And when the Jewish people came back into town, into Jerusalem, the first thing they did was to build an altar, a place of worship, because they knew without the worship of God, they were nothing. Worship is where it started for them. And now we move on to Ezra chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And we look, the next thing they do is they begin to build the foundation stones, reestablish the temple that housed the holy place of God, the Ark of the Covenant. If you would, go ahead and turn there with me, Ezra chapter 3. We're going to look and pick up the ongoing story of the return of the Israelites and the reestablishment of the city of Jerusalem and their place of worship. Ezra 3, starting with verse 7. Then the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The logs were brought down from the Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. They began the process of rebuilding the temple similar to the way King Solomon built the first temple. And you can find that in Second Chronicles. Um, just start reading chapters 1 through chapter 7 at the dedication of the temple. It goes into immaculate detail as to how Solomon built the temple. But this would not be as glorious as Solomon's temple. But they began the same processes that he went through in rebuilding the temple. They got the craftsmen together and they began to get the cedar timbers that they once would have had to hold up the roof of the complex of the temple. And they floated them down the Mediterranean Sea along the coast from where modern day Lebanon is today down to Joppa. Do you remember the city of Joppa from a small book by the name of Jonah in the Old Testament? Joppa is where Jonah set off to go to Tarshish because he didn't want to follow God and do what God told him to do. So just a little history lesson there in case you were curious. But they floated them down to Joppa where they took them on land and brought them to Jerusalem. Verse 8, the construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests and all the Levites. The Levites, who were 20 years old or older, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. I think this is interesting. The Levites, who are they? They are the priests of God or the priestly sect of individuals who through the lineage of Jacob way back in the Old Testament in Genesis, uh, actually the tribe of Levi comes from. And the tribe of Levi was never allowed to own any land. Though they were one of the tribes, they were the priestly sect of tribes. They were the ones who actually on behalf of the people offered sacrifices to God. They served the people by serving God. That was their job. All right, give you an example of that today. That'd be like pastors. This is our main role and vocation. 
Many of us are called to ministry to do just that. Now, we don't have to take your appeals to God. You can do that. But pastors, prophets, evangelists, teachers still have a role within the church today. Just to give you a little extra there. Verse 9, the workers at the temple of God were supervised by Yeshua with his sons and relatives and Kadmiel and his sons and all descendants of Hodaviah. They were helped in this task by the Levites of the family of Henadad. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and they took their places to blow their trumpets and the Levites' descendants of Asaph clashed their cymbals and praised the Lord, just as King David had prescribed in the Old Testament, in their books uh, of the Old Testament. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because of the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and the other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together with a loud noise that could be heard far off in the distance. Key point this morning is this. God's faithful love endures forever. We could close it up and go home. I know I preach, I tend to preach long. (laughs) And some of you, especially at home, you could pause me or pick me up later. You're stuck here if you're in this place, so you could fall asleep and shut me off. But God's faithful love endures forever. God's faithful love endures forever. And God's love is the foundation on which he desires that we build our life. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone or the capstone that we learn about. So the foundation is the love of God. And John tells us in 1 John that God is love. So God, in essence, is the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? If you're a mason, you know the cornerstone is the first block that's laid on uh, in, in determining the square of, of the, the building you're going to be building or the edifice you're going to be building. Right? The, the first stone is the one stone by which all other stones are measured. It's locked in place. Some places, uh, Jesus is called the capstone uh, or the keystone, as you might know in Pennsylvania, we're the keystone state. What is the keystone? The keystone is that very center block on an archway, and that one piece holds the whole arch in place. If you take that one stone out, what happens to the arch? It completely collapses. Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone. God's love is the foundation. So let's look at a couple aspects of this passage of Scripture today and see what we can learn from it for us that we can apply to our lives. The first thing I believe is that we can understand is that God loves love for us endures through every circumstance. Do you think God quit loving the Israelites when he punished them and sent them off into exile under the Babylonians or the Assyrians? Did, did God quit loving his people? No. Does God ever stop loving his people? No, he doesn't. See, God's love endures forever. God's love is faithful. 
and endures forever. And, and we read in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that God disciplines those he loves. So God's love never ends. It never fails. It never stops. But God's love has to be received. You can reject it until you're blue in the face, till you're dying breath. And you can allow that love to be just to bounce off of you. But God's love endures forever. He still loves you whether you love him or not. But he loves you enough to give you the choice of whether or not to love him in return, whether or not to receive his love. There are many people that reject God's love. Who is this God guy anyway? I don't think I even believe in him. And that is a rejection of God, a rejection of God's love. How could any of us reject such a sweet gift? How could we be so off-put by this idea that there is a God and that he does love people? Well, here's one way. Here, here's one way. There's so much turmoil and sin and death in the world. If there's an all-loving God, truly, who loves everybody, then why doesn't he stop all the bad things from happening? Why did he allow the pandemic? Why does he allow earthquakes and tsunamis to wipe out hundreds of thousands of people across the globe? Why does he allow people to get cancer and other diseases? Why does he allow, why does he allow uh, wrecks? And tragedies that just lay us out. I contend, as I did a couple of weeks ago, that it's because of God's love that he hasn't completely shut everything down and said enough. And here's why I say that. Because God doesn't want anybody to not have the opportunity to receive his love. Well, then why doesn't he stop everything? Because God though he does have ultimate control over everything, doesn't manufacture every decision that every person makes. There's a choice that you have. There is a free will decision you have in the matter. What you do and your actions can hurt other people. Did you know that? Have you ever hurt somebody? Unintentionally. Have you ever unintentionally said something that hurt somebody's feelings? So you then were the cause of that person's hurt. Now, there are people that actually go out and intentionally try to hurt and harm people. We see it on the news all the time. But our freedom of choice and our freedom to choose does have ramifications and ripple effects, whether good or bad. We live in that kind of world. What is the best kind of world that God could create? And philosophers have debated this since the time of Plato, Aristotle. What is the best kind of world that God could create? He could create a world where everybody did exactly as he programmed them to do. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? I'm reading a book right now called 1984. <laughs> it is the creepiest book I think I've read. Uh, if you've read Animal Farm, it's another one of uh, 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 George Orwell. It's another one of his writings. 1984 is really, really creepy because uh, Big Brother's always watching you. The thought police are out there. I mean, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, get 1984, read it. 
I don't know if I even should suggest that. It is just really creepy. But I get this sense that that's what the world would be like if God forced everybody to do exactly what he wanted them to do. Now, you have a God who could do that, or you could have a God who was powerless. He could create everything, but he couldn't do anything about it. We call this many number of things uh, in theology, in the biblical realm, but technically uh, deism is another way to formulate this, is that God, like the magic clockmaker, puts everything into place and he winds up the clock and eventually it just ticks down until the end of time and then he comes back in and everything's done. So it's a God who is powerless to do or effect any kind of change. Would you like to live in a world like that? So it's either complete control over everything that everybody does down to the nth degree detail, or it has no power at all except to set creation into motion and to shut it down. You see, in order for God to truly be love, I don't contend, but Scripture contends that there has to be freedom of choice. You go all the way back to the beginning of time, Genesis 1 and 2. Did God create evil? One of the big questions that atheists or those who struggle with this skeptical belief of God really throw out there is this. Is if can, could, why did God even put a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden for them to eat of? Why did he even give them that option? Because I liken it to this kind of illustration, and that is the person you married or the person you love the most, if they were forced to love you, is that love? That's a, it was a rhetorical question, but I expected a couple of... So if, if you were forced to have to stay with your spouse, if you were forced to love them, would that be a great relationship or what? No. We love because it's a choice. We are compelled to do that. And our love should grow deeper, Right? So God had to give a choice in order for there to be freedom to choose him or to reject him. See, that's why we can get down to the science of it all. Is there literal days of creation? Or were there really trees called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We can debate that until we're blue in the face. I don't care where you stand on those issues. What I do care about is that you understand that what Genesis 1 and 2 are trying to relate to us is that God put everything into motion. He created everything that ever has come into being. But he also created humans with a choice to love or reject him. Thus, there's a tree, whether it's real or not, in the Garden of, of, of Eden that gives us a choice. And now your tree and my tree may be different. Maybe your tree is pornography. Maybe your tree is alcohol or heroin or maybe your tree is gossip or unforgiveness. Maybe your tree is bitterness and resentfulness. Maybe, maybe your tree is hatred, adultery, sexual immorality of any kind. Maybe your tree is something like that today. It's the knowledge of good and evil. You have a choice, just as much as Adam and Eve, the first humans, had. But see, the choice is this, to choose that tree versus the tree of life, which comes from God himself, 
is to choose death. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what were the consequences of Adam and Eve if they were to eat of that fruit? Do not eat of this tree, for the day you eat it, you will die. That's a consequence. Do you think God wanted them to die? Now, why would he put a tree there? Why do we have stoves in our house if we have little kids? <laughs> why do we have stairs? Why don't we, why don't we only build one-level houses if we have kids? Because they could fall down the stairs and die. Why do we have cars or roads? Because our kids could run out in the middle of a road. Let's just eliminate that altogether. Do you catch where I'm going here? If God's love endures forever, his love has to be a choice to be chosen by us in order for it to really resonate and be real. See, God's love for us comes not only wrapped up in a package of joy and blissfulness, it comes wrapped up in a package that is bloody and beaten, that's scarred and bruised. Jesus' whole purpose God knew we couldn't do it. God knew we could not truly save ourselves. He knew that every other foundation in the world was not possible to build on to save ourselves. And so what does he do? At just the right time in human history, he says, I'm going to show them the extent of my love. Because they can't do it themselves. They can kill, they could kill a million more animals than they do now at Passover. They could, they could kill all the animals on the face of the earth and shed that blood for the sacrifice of sin and still not be enough. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to put an end to all of that. No more death, just mine just mine. I'll do it for them. And so he comes and shows us the way because he is the way. He comes and shows us what is really true because he is the truth. And he comes to give us life everlasting because he is life. And only through the death of his life do we have eternal life when we say yes to him and no to everything else. God's love endures forever. The second part of this is God's future glory is far greater than our previous successes. So God's love endures forever, but God's future glory is greater than our previous successes. Many of us want to live in the past. What was happening with the priests or those that had been there and had seen the glory of Solomon's temple? They were weeping. They were weeping not for joy. They were weeping because the foundation, just looking at the foundation, wasn't as beautiful as the foundation of Solomon's original temple. You see, there were, there were a generation of people that were still there that remembered the glory of Solomon's temple in the past. But there were also generations of new Levites and young people that had never seen the glory of that temple. And this was before the day of photography and videography. They didn't have pictures. 
And as the older people are standing there, as the final stone of the foundation is laid, they begin to weep because they realize it's not what it was. It's not as beautiful and splendid and magnificent and majestic. Yeah, we have the golden stuff from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar stole and Cyrus gave back to us from the temple treasury, but this place is like a shack compared to what Solomon had. But those who had no clue of what the splendor of the previous temple was were shouting for joy because it's all they had. It's all they knew. One of the struggles in being in ministry is we oftentimes point to the past. Don't we? Actually, it's not just a struggle in the ministry. It's a struggle in culture. And I'm not talking about progressive versus conservative and all that. Please pull political stuff out of your minds because I know we are inundated with it in the, political, or in, the, in the news. I'm talking, this is a spiritual conversation right, we're having right here, okay? Not political. But we often point to successes of the past. I mean, we need to recreate this. We need to recreate that. The question is, does God ever do anything new? Yes. God does new things all the time. God always is making things new. How many times does, does God have, a, does, did Jesus have a standard way for healing the blind people that he came in contact with? No. Did, God, did Jesus have a standard way of healing the lame who couldn't walk or raising the dead? No. Sometimes in healing the blind person, he'd make mud pies on their eyes. Right? Sometimes he'd just say, be healed. <laughs> Sorry, he'd just say, be healed. Sorry, I was just reverting back to my Bible Belt days. Hallelujah. We think that in order for other people to get saved, they have to get saved exactly the way we were. Under the right song, with the right musical instrument. In pews versus chairs or out. We have to be baptized this way versus that way and this place versus that place. We have to have communion this way versus that way. We have to take up offering this way versus that. We think we've got to do all of these prescribed things that actually are not prescribed. They're just tradition. And tradition holds a great place within society when it continues to promote us to look for the future. But when tradition holds us back from what God desires for us, then it becomes an albatross. Do you understand that? I've battled this in, in the time I've been a pastor at three different churches. Tradition is hard to let go of. And not all tradition do we need to let go of. Do you understand me? But if tradition becomes our God, then it needs to be let go of. What did Hezekiah do in the Old Testament? Do you remember the staff 
that Moses had that, had that had a snake inscription on it that healed the people that were bit by poisonous snakes in the wilderness? So generations later, well after Moses, that staff had become something to the people. It had become such an icon of goodness, or so they thought. And Hezekiah was like, you guys are, no, and he takes this staff. It'd be like me as a pastor. It's taking the staff, and he crushes it on a rock. And you could hear the gasp. <gasps> Not the staff! You know why? Because that staff had become their idol. That had become their God. It had become their object to worship. I've been in churches where the communion table becomes an object to worship or where this specific song or that specific instrument or this specific piece of furniture. There was one, my, the church that I grew up in, and I won't tell you where it is, there was a small little basket in the, in, in the entryway. My mom's here. She could tell you after service if she wants to. <clears throat> There was, there was, we had an entryway very much smaller than our entryway here. And on the little front entryway table was this little bitty woven basket with uh, fake ferns sticking out of it. And I had since gone to college, I believe, but I'd, the, the story had gotten back to me that the lady that donated that little fern noticed that it was gone one, one Sunday and was not happy that the fern was gone and wanted it back. I want the fern. Honestly, though, let's be, let's be completely transparent here. Do those things amount to a hill of beans in the grand scheme of eternity? Does the color of the carpet, does the does this building, if it were to be struck by, which it has been struck by lightning many times, even since I've been here, I just think God's sending us a signal. I don't want you to be there anymore. I'm just kidding. Hey, um, if it were to catch on fire and burn to the ground, would we cease to be the church? Thank you for actually answering me on that. We would not cease to be the church because the church is not the place, the building, the edifice, the furniture. The church is God. And his people who gather, or the church is, he's the head, we are the body. We can be the church without a building. Actually, the early church didn't have buildings. They actually went to the temple before 70 AD, before the Romans tore it down in 70 AD. And then did they cease to be the church even when the temple was torn down in 70 AD? Because they went there every day to pray and to worship, but they also met in each other's homes every day. They broke bread together. They studied the apostles' teaching. They prayed. They fellowshiped. They shared the Lord's Supper together. So those of you that are at home, you are as much a part of the church as those of us that are here. So what do we do with all this? Adam Clark He's now dead and gone, but he's an old commentator and theologian. He writes, the site must have been uh, very affecting to the people to see the foundation stones laid again. A whole people, one part crying out loud with sorrow, the other shouting for loud joy. And on the same occasion at the same time in which both sides felt equal interest. The prophet Haggai comforted them 
on this occasion by assuring them that the glory of this latter house should exceed that of the former because, the, excuse me, the glory of this latter house should exceed that of the former because the glory of Jesus Christ was come to this temple and fill it with his glory. Here's the deal. This second temple, Jesus never walked into the first temple. It got destroyed before Jesus came onto the earth. But what temple would Jesus step into? The second one, the foundation stones of that. Is God, does he do new things? Of course he does. The very temple of the foundation they were laying would be the one that God himself would step into. At age 12, his parents would accidentally forget him and leave him at church. It happens. And, and, they, would, and they, would, they would get halfway home, several day journey, and realize, uh, where's Jesus? Oh no, we forgot Jesus. I can't wait to talk to Mary and Joseph when I get to heaven because I think, you know, this is going to, you know, I never, for, I, well, okay, we have some stories to share. But your kid was perfect. So, uh, needless to say, they go back and they find him. Where is he? He's not wandering around in the marketplace playing something in the streets with the other kids. What's he doing? He's in the temple teaching the teachers. <laughs> that is awesome. And when they say, didn't you know we were had? what are you doing here? I'm supposed to be about my father's business. And he wasn't being a smart aleck. He was just saying, this is what I was called. This is me. This is, this is who I am. See, this very Jesus would also step through those temple gates and doors on multiple occasions. Is there a temple today? There is, but is it built by human hands? No. The second temple, the one whose foundation stones were laid in Ezra chapter 3, got destroyed again. It would be added onto, glorified. King Herod would build onto it and uh, it would be, become more magnificent than it was when they started putting it together centuries before. But eventually, the Romans, as I mentioned earlier, would sack Jerusalem. They would basically just tear it apart the way the Babylonians did. They'd burn it to the ground. And they tore every stone down that lay on that foundation. And you can actually go to Jerusalem today and look on uh, from the Temple Mount. You can walk around the edge of the Temple Mount and you can see the stones that are left today from the time they built it in Ezra chapter 3. Just in mounds and huge, these huge stones laying over the hillside. So for 2,000 years, give or take, there hasn't been a physical temple we haven't needed a physical temple. The whole New Testament is littered with imagery of what the temple is. It's the body of Christ. On multiple occasions, Paul writes, you are the temple. 
You, plural, you, people of God, are the body of Christ. You are the holy temple. When we gather together like this, where it says two or more gather in his name, he is there among him. Where, does, where did he come in the Old Testament? Where did his glory come? Where did he dwell in the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit would come upon certain individuals, but God's holy presence would come upon the temple in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant. Where does God's presence come today? Where two or more gather in his name, there he is among them. The holy presence of God rests among his people. So we don't need a physical place. John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And they get into a little bit of a debate on where the place to worship is. Is it in Jerusalem or is it in Mount Gerizim in Samaria? You can find out details about that if you go all the way back when the northern and southern kingdom split. The northern kingdom decided they're going to have a holy place too, and we're going to call it Mount Gerizim. You, you guys in Judah, you can have Jerusalem, whatever. And so she's now debating with Jesus, where is the most holy place? Is it Jerizim or is it Jerusalem? And Jesus says, neither. You see, because the time is coming, he says, and actually is now here. When you will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. You see, he wasn't saying that, that a place of worship is the place to worship. It's about a who, not a what. It doesn't matter where, it matters who. Jesus always focused us on the most important things because God's love never fails. It always endures forever. It is a foundation for everything in creation. You cannot read Genesis 1 and 2 and not see it saturated with the love of God. With joy and goodness, he created each day of creation, and he looked back on it, and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. He loved what he did. He loved the work of creating, and he still loves the work of creating new creations like you. He never stops creating. Through Christ and the death on the cross, he wants to give you new life. He wants to give you a solid and firm foundation. Let me conclude with this. We can't live in the past glories of, our, of God's future. Or excuse me, we cannot live in the past glories of our or God's successes. Because God does new things all the time. We must press on into the present realities of God's new mercies. We mustn't be so backward looking that we neglect to praise God in the present hope of his future glory. And the troubles you're facing now are nothing compared to the glorious standard of God at his second coming. He just asked, can you hold out a little longer? This world isn't your home. I never created you for this fallen world. I created you for my perfect world. And the only way to experience my perfect world is through my son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Second Corinthians, Paul writes this. We, he talks about fixing our eyes on Christ the author and perfecter of our faith. We have to continue to press on and praise God for the accomplishments 
that he works through us. We must honor the past and live in the present and press on toward God's glorious standard that will one day be consummated into life everlasting. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, that's why we never give up. How many of you have given up? You've maybe given up on belief in God. You've given up on God. You've given up on yourself. Maybe you've given up on any number of things. Paul says we never give up. We who? We the church. We never give up. Are you going to give up? No. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day, he goes on to say. For our present troubles, our present troubles are small and won't last very long. It feels like it's going to last forever. There's no end in sight. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. But Paul reminds us, even he who was in prison twice, beaten and left for dead, and actually suffered execution for his faith, he can write these words. Our present troubles are small, and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can now see, but rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will be gone someday. They will not last forever, but the things we cannot see will last forever. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the very last verse of chapter 13, he says, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. They will never end, and therein lies where we should put all of our eggs, in that basket, faith, hope, and love. N.T. Wright explains it this way. We sometimes speak of somebody who has been very sick just being a shadow of their former self. But what Paul seems to be saying here is that human beings are just a shadow of their future selves. God has prepared a larger selfhood, which is the true fulfillment of all they are at the moment, which will be the final glorious enriching of it. Everything that humans at their deepest and best moments are reaching out for, struggling after, longing for, and dreaming of will finally be fulfilled. Not necessarily, of course, in the ways we would currently imagine. Rather, in the ways that God knows will be truly fulfilling for us. So you may be going through something right now that doesn't feel right. It hurts. It's painful. But he's saying, hold on. I'll see you through this. And I will truly fulfill you if you stay with me. Just stick with me in this. So he goes on to say, the eternal weight of glory of which Paul is speaking is the new life patterned on the risen humanity of Jesus, expressing not only what we are at the moment truly as God's children, as his creation, but what we will be when God has completed what he has begun in the spirit. We are living in the day and age of the spirit and his work is not yet done. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Are you faithful to stick with him in the process. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, what God has begun in Christians, he will bring to completion on that day when Christ returns. As our worship team comes forward, let me ask you this question.
What is your life built on? I can give you all the evidence, circumstantial and otherwise, for a belief in God. I can give you all the evidence why you shouldn't give up if you're struggling right now. But until you come to this point where you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, there's nothing I could do or anybody else for that matter. Let me ask you to do this. Really take stock and look. What is my life built on? Is it built on my successes at work? Is it built on my family? Is it built on um, my degrees that I might have from school? Uh, is it built on uh, previous successes that, you know, and plaques and stuff that I got from my past? Is it built on the lives I'm building into? Hear me out. That sounds like a good thing. But if I'm building into other people's lives and those people become my foundation, guess what? Those people are imperfect and they will fail me at one point in time or another. What is perfect and good and right and holy that you're building your life on? That is your stable foundation. You see, there is no other perfect moral good than God himself. We're just spitting in the wind if we think we've got something else other than God that is our foundation. My hope and my prayer for you today is that wherever you are, whatever you're thinking, that God somehow turns that light bulb on for you and you say, all right, I get it. I get it. Even a glimpse of it. He, I just pray that he gives you just even a small little glimpse, like a shadow to say, that's enough. I get it. I believe and those of you who do believe, I pray that your belief would grow deeper, stronger. You don't stop. You continue to grow as a believer in Christ. Again, I always say this every Sunday. Uh, you come to my right, your left. This is a come and invade my space area. I want somebody to pray with me here. Okay? And if you want to be left alone... And spaced out, you come to my left, your right, to these altars. We talked about the significance of the altar last week. It's a place of worship. It's a place of giving God everything. Those of you at home, you can find a chair, a couch, a table that you can kneel up against. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning. And if you want to come pray and have people pray with you, please do so. But pray this prayer with me in your heart. Heavenly Father, I ask you to be my firm foundation. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I ask you to come into my life and make me into a new creation. If there's a foundation I've been building on that doesn't align with your perfect ideals for, for my life, I pray that you would pick me up and plant me in that firm foundation, which is Christ. Forgive me of my wandering Lord, I feel it. Give me hope. Help me, help me to learn from my past, to live in the present and press on toward the future glory in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.